Welcome to episode four of Milwaukee Logic. This is our second week, and this is going to be our second episode of political discussions, debatings, rantings. Uh, today we're going to do it a little bit different than we did last week. Uh, each Ben and I both have a particular thing that we're going to talk about and make a case for. And then after we finish our case, we're going to debate it back and forth, argue about it. And then after that, we're going to do a short general discussion session. So, uh, whatever. Would you like to go first? So we're, we're going to have a, a tangential thing at the end. Yeah, where we can just, we can just go into whatever. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You go first. All right, so the case that I'm going to make today, and this is something that we talked about a fair amount last week, and it was basically without having done specific research and like preparing for it and just kind of like... We were significantly more drunk at that point in time as well, I think, last <laughs> week. <laughs> so we were struggling for the words at times. Uh, but talking about the financial crisis, the Great Recession, and my, my position is that government involvement and in regulation is the primary cause of the Great Recession and not just corporate greed and a lack of regulation. Okay, so I did not do... A ton of research on this prior to this so I'm gonna let you kind of give your case you might pop in and you know ask questions or something like that but I just want to hear your your, your general case of what your your argument consists okay of. and that's perfectly fair absolutely all right so as kind of background like obviously there's a lot of history a lot of things happen to create the climate and the situation that leads up to a major event uh, we kind of talked about how the situation that a president just gets and walks into is they have no control over that. Um, a lot of times the climate chooses the president and steers an election, not the other way around. But for how, how government involvement and regulation caused the Great Recession, I'm going to go back to, um, well, really a background, I'm going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about the Community Reinvestment Act, which was passed in 1977. We're going to talk about GSEs, we're basically just government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, Jenny Mae, like in the involvement that they had. And then what really kicked things into gear and I'll get to is the 1992 Act, the Federal Housing Enterprises Financial Security and Soundness Act. Of 1992. This sounds very, very entertaining topics. I'm going to make the case for how government caused the crisis and not the banks. Right. So, going back to prior to the Great Depression, there was no secondary mortgage market for um, for home for home mortgages. If a a bank or financial institution wanted to make a loan, they were stuck with it. They had to live with it. If it got for if it the, the buyers stopped making payments. They had to foreclose in the house themselves and deal with the deal with what came out of that. They had to try to sell it. They had to try to recover however much money they could. So obviously, in the Great Depression, there was extremely high unemployment. Just, just real quick, by the way. So yeah. what's, what's our starting? What's our launching point here? You said 1977. So I'm starting back in the 30s. Oh, oh God, we're going way back. Okay. I'm going back to the start of these government-sponsored enterprises. Okay. Uh, in specific Fannie Mae. So in the, in the 1930s, we had the Great Depression. Uh, there was very high unemployment. Uh, the economy was not growing at all. And it was very, very difficult for anybody to buy a house. 
and the government stepped in. Obviously, the, the, the case was made that the free market economy had failed the American people. The middle class or lower class person who maybe they had a job and was struggling to buy a house, the free market had failed them. And what we needed was regulation. We needed the government to save them. So during the 30s, in the, as part of the New Deal, the Fannie Mae was created, and it was an instrument whereby they could buy. And it was at that point, it was a totally government-run, government-owned organization. And it was put in place to buy mortgages from lenders. So lenders could make a loan to a person who's trying to buy a house, and if they're worried that they would get stuck with it, and they, which was the reason why they weren't making the loans, they could sell that loan to Fannie Mae, and then Fannie Mae could sell it as a, a mortgage-backed security. As we move ahead, there, it, it wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount of volume. What are we moving ahead to? We're moving ahead to uh, right after World War II. Okay. There, there hadn't been a huge amount of volume. It wasn't a huge thing, but the machinery is in place. So after World War II, the VA, the VA program to help veterans buy homes on very low interest, very low fees, um, relied heavily on Fannie Mae, and it's, the business grew a lot. In 1954, Fannie Mae was reorganized to be a mixed public-private enterprise. So it was government-run, but partially government-owned, partially privately-owned. As we move ahead then to 1968 and the HUD law, the Housing and Urban Development Law was passed, Fannie Mae become, became totally privately owned, but still government run. So they were financing a lot of their instruments and purchasing of, um, purchasing of loans by selling, just pretty much all from selling bonds on mortgage-backed securities. And the stockholders were just Whoever was buying stock, regular people, rich people might have a lot of the whatever. In the same law, Jenny Mae is formed, and that was kind of how Fannie Mae started, where it was run by the government, totally government owned, and Freddie Mac was formed, and that was government run, and then a mixed public and private uh, enterprise. <clears throat> In 1977, and this is where things start to pick up a little bit, the All Community right, Reinvestment there. Act. It was what? the Community Reinvestment Act. Okay. It was passed, and this is a quote, to reduce discriminatory credit practices against low-income neighborhoods, a practice known as redlining. Redlining is a fairly common term that was talked about as this was debated uh, several years ago. The act instructed federal regulators to encourage regulated financial institutions to help meet the needs of local communities in which they are chartered. That was what the law was intended to. That is what that is how the law was sold and how it was to function. Okay. So redlining. Basically what they're finding is that lending institutions weren't giving any mortgages to people who lived within certain areas marked out and with red lines. Mm -hmm. And they seriously they were they were going looking at neighborhoods on a map draw a red line around it. Like, this neighborhood sucks. If we make a loan in this area, there's a really high chance we're gonna get foreclosed on. And almost looking at it more of an, as an actuary, if we're doing business in this area, we're gonna get screwed. And 
It's also important to note that the GSEs who could buy loans before that were required by law to only buy mortgages that could be that had a prime rating. There was no subprime secondary home mortgage market. They could only buy prime. So if these banks wanted to make home loans to people who had a subprime rating, they had they were stuck with it. They had to keep it. They had no choice. So the Community Reinvestment Act was put into place to eliminate redlining and require lenders and racism and fighting racism was, was a huge part of that. I mean, it's just coded into language, reduce discriminatory credit practices against low-income neighborhoods. It's just, it's written right in there. It's all like the, the, the racial component of it is right there. And the way that they rated the financial institutions and how they're doing on it was by measuring their CRA, which is Community Reinvestment Act, their CRA compliance. You had to maintain a certain CRA score if you wanted to keep doing business. So after 1977, these companies had to start making loans in neighborhoods where not many people who qualified for a loan. So, sure as shit, they were looking really hard trying to find the people who lived in these areas who could actually qualify for a loan. And in order to make a lot of, enough of these bad loans, I shouldn't say bad loans, um, loans in neighborhoods where they normally might not want to do business, they had to, take, they had to make a lot of bad loans. They had to make a lot of loans to people that normally they would know that there's a really high probability that these people are not going to pay, pay it off. And again, you look at the situation where people in these areas are not able to buy loans, the cry was, we need, the free market has failed these people, we need government regulation, we need a program, we need a law to fix it, to save these people, to help them, and help them through home ownership pursue the American dream. Now, this forced a lot of lending institutions to make bad loans, like I said. And if you remember in the, the second half of the 80s and into the 90s, we had the savings and loan crisis. Over the course of under, a little under a decade, about 1,000 out of a little over 3,000 savings and loan institutions in the United States went bankrupt. The reason for this... This was 86, you said? This started in 86. Okay enough of those loans that they made that normally they wouldn't have made but they had to make went like went into foreclosure that a lot of these companies went bust okay. and in the snl crisis there was a major and again stop me if you've heard this before there was a bailout because this industry was too important to fail even though all these not there were so many institutions they weren't super big so it wasn't too big to fail it was too important to fail. And the, sounds, the failure of so like many... semantics to me, but okay. Well, so many hundreds and eventually over a thousand failed that it was causing a drag on the overall economy. So there was a bailout that costed the United States taxpayer a little over $125 billion okay. to bail them out to keep, uh, to keep the industry running. So under Bush 1, it was... Basically put forward, and he didn't have control of Congress, obviously. So we're talking right around now. So now we're going into the so. end of the 80s, so okay. 89. And the demand so was... So I'm, I'm born at this point. We, yes. 
I think we're all, I'm, all of I'm us two years are. old. <laughs> Just being adorable as ever. Uh, yeah, okay, you know, whatever. You make very compelling arguments. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to jumping in here, but go ahead. Okay. So, sorry, 89, the Bush administration, this is H.W. Bush, made the demand that we need, again, since we have this crisis, and having not already seen the trend, we need another law and more regulation to pro- to so that regulators can force or force lenders to not make these things to make these bad loans to prevent them from the reckless continuing the reckless practices that allowed this the SNL crisis to occur. This uh, this legislation took several years to write, get out of Congress. Um, at the time, the chair of the House Banking Committee was a Texas congressman named Henry Gonzalez, and his right-hand man was Barney Frank, which is a name that I think a lot of people have heard. Yeah. And <clears throat> what they did is they deputized Acorn, even as it was at that time, to be the architects of the new law and to help write it along with like several other groups. What year are we talking about? This is, this is leading between 1989 and 1992. Okay. And since before it started getting written, the Bush administration had pushed for it, the American people were demanding the regulation, and people are generally not so good at reading the fine details, much of the law was written in such a way that it sounded like it would help and it would be good, but it created a new requirement. Now remember, up to this point, the GSEs, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Jenny Mae, could not buy subprime loans. So when these lenders were forced to make the loans, they were stuck with them. That created the SNL crisis in large part. So in this law is built in a GSE requirement. And initially the GSE requirement that 30% of loans purchased by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and Jenny Mae had to be subprime. 30%. So these government-run institutions were buying, 30% of the time at least, loans that they knew had a high probability were going to go under. Definitely deals that you're thinking are going to go sideways. Buying them anyway. The hope was that if you maintain demand for homes, prices go up, if somebody gets underwater, they can sell. 1992, what happened after 1992? The recession at the time ended and we started the boom of the 90s. Housing prices went up dramatically. People started buying homes that they normally wouldn't have been able to afford. I mean, they had to. Lenders had it now all of a sudden, they had to push for finding people to buy loans, knowing that they're probably not the best candidate for it because they had to due to the Community Reinvestment Act, they're forced to do it. And these government-run entities who are trying to buy from them mortgages, they're pushing, they're pulling these loans as much as they can because they need to meet their requirement of 30%. Now, as housing continued to take off, over time, it became increasingly 
difficult to make that sustainable. You needed more and more and more demand, more and more people to come into the market. And to do that, you need to expand your pool of people that are normally that would normally not be able to buy uh, homes who would be considered the loans would be considered subprime. In 2000, because HUD had the power to control this GSC percentage, now we're going up to 2000. I'm 13. <laughs> In 2000, HUD changed that percentage from 30 to 50. And this is not a maximum, this is a minimum. At this point already, an enormous percentage of home loans are being purchased by Fannie, Freddie, and Jenny. At least half of those mortgages that they were buying were subprime, not good loans. Already, the structure is put in place where they were, I mean, they've been selling by this point for over 60 years, loans that they purchased and sell and dividing them into tranches and selling them as mortgage-backed securities. This has been going on. And now, not only were they able to do it, they've been able to do it for a while. They had to do it. They didn't have a choice. All these companies, Fannie, Je Freddie, Jenny, they had to pull at least 50% subprime loans from these lenders. They were at that point packaging them up, chopping them apart, selling them as bonds to the market in general. Now, keep in mind now, Fannie and Freddie, at least, are wholly owned by the public. Oh, I should, uh, the other part of the Federal Housing Enterprise Financial Safety and Soundness Act, uh, Freddie went from being partially government owned and partially private owned to being totally private owned. So shareholders, what do they want? They want profit. They want to show profit. They want to see profit. The shareholders for uh, the lending institutions, which we touched on last, last week, towards the end of the 80s, all these lending institutions went from being privately owned from a small closed group to being uh, openly traded. So stockholders, they want to see profits. They need to see profits. And in that environment of the shareholders, which in a lot of cases, the same shareholders for Fannie and Freddie were the same shareholders for the lending institutions and with the government requirements to make so many bad loans, the balloon was already expanding and it was rapid. In 2001, by the time Bush took office, he was sitting on a balloon that was already expanding. In 2003, this now George W. Bush made a push for reforming the housing system. It was shot down, he was shouted down and lost the public debate to Barney Frank, who, and this is again a quote, wanted to roll the dice a little bit longer on subsidized housing. Actually, no, wanted to roll the dice on subsidized housing some more. He also made the statement that the fundamentals of the housing market were sound. It was a big statement at the time. Wait, who did you say that was? Barney Frank. Okay. So at this point... So where, what, 2005? 2003. 2003. So the Bush administration, they're sitting on a bubble. It's expanding rapidly. And you can't do anything to fix it. You can't do anything to change it. The only thing that could have been done at this point, when you're this far into it, is to pull out a pin and pop a balloon that you're sitting on. That would have caused a massive recession 
at that point. And in 2003, remember, we were just coming out of a, a smaller recession at that time. Recession, yeah. yeah. Um, that would have been, obviously, he would have been blamed for it. Um, conservatives would have been pilloried. And history would always blame them for doing that themselves and causing it. Okay. Oh, man. I, I, I should, I As we get into 2007, so. now we're up to 2007. We're at, the, we're at the crisis. It's like too late. Lacking any other option, they tried raising the GSE requirement to 55%. Had no effect, obviously. The ship had sailed. The damage was done. Oh. So, as we know, once oh. enough mortgages went bust, the bonds started failing and the whole market collapsed. It created an environment that, want, that demanded massive change. Obama was elected. He came in, the, the bubble had already been popped. He could have allowed the market to clear, but instead- oh, so you've already got to blaming Obama. What demand, this is good. This is good. what demand did people make that had been made so many times before? What did we need? What failed? I was a did government fail? No, the free market failed, and only the free market failed. And what's needed is more regulation, more government problems to save us once again. I'm very. I was very afraid that you weren't going to get to blaming Obama, so that made me happy that you really got to there. I didn't blame Obama. <laughs> it was it was the tail end of it. I'm not blaming Obama for that. I it happened. I'm just, I'm just kidding. The bubble popped before he got into office. How can I blame Obama? Oh, then just poor George Bush. He just was handed this balloon. This is reality now. Okay, well, so can I give you like my my mini counterpoints to okay. a lot of that stuff? All right. Uh, oh God, I don't even know where to begin. First off, that is a very optimistic and self-serving <clears throat> view to, hey, first off, you weren't saying whether those were Republican or de Democratic things. You're just kind of describing what happened in the last There is failure on both parties. Okay. There is failure in the institutions. I think that the lending institutions are <clears throat> being publicly traded, uh, that helped cause a lot of the environment that went into it. So that's, that is a free market failure. Okay. And the people who are so foolish as to believe that they should be buying these houses and we're getting sucked into it, right. they're also, also partially to blame. All right. Well, let me just run down a couple top thoughts off the top of my head. Yep. First off, uh, again, this isn't supposed to be a Republican or Democratic versus type thing, but I just feel like I do need to point out the fact that you're saying it really ramped up in 77. Well, then we had Reagan and then Bush 1 from 80 to 92, and then Bush 2, 2000 to 2008. So that's, what, uh, five out of seven? Terms right there are Republican presidents. What did neither of those presidents ever have? What's that? They never had Congress. Okay. So they can't go back and strike down the Community Reinvestment Act. Well, again, this, goes, imagine, this goes back to last week's episode when I repeatedly said that I think presidents are often overrated in their power. Yeah. I'm just saying that is something I just need to initially point out. And there were some. Uh, okay, so that's just something I that's, wanted to point out. That's a moot point. It's not relevant. Okay, you can say it's a moot point, but if it would have been a Democratic one, you would have pointed that out. So, there's that. Uh, you are giving a lot of credit to 
banks and businesses that I just I just find it very hard when you're talking about I feel like you're giving a very optimistic moral approach on these industries that I don't think gave a fuck about the public they were trying to make money and I think it's very convenient to just be like well they tried to do this and it, regulations stop them from doing this and stop them from no 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 they okay they they didn't want to make bad loans because when they did it cost them money see that's the free market at work but see that is where i just think that's ridiculous because i think a lot of these people did like to make bad loans they made money off of bad loans that's how this whole financial crisis started was because they could these loans were bought off by other people. They pawned it off to whoever. A lot of the like the housing things, like the there's just a lot of uh, you can make money making bad loans. That is a business. And so the structure that allows that to happen was created by government. No, it wasn't. Absolutely. No, it's it's called the secondary home mortgage market with government run entities buying mortgages. That idea that was created is by caused by people wanting to make money. That is the in, that is the epitome of free market. I don't have a problem with free market. I enjoy free market. I'm a capitalist. Awesome. Go America. But to think here, like, to say that in a free market these things don't happen is just insane to me because people are people at the end of the day. Greed is out there and people fuck over people for profit. And that is how a lot of, for the most part, a lot of these problems came. And to think that. I'm not saying that there hasn't been overregulation. It's uh, there is. I just think that to to blame regulation on the housing crisis is just ridiculous because people did this knowingly and willingly. They knew that these were bad loans. They were making money off of it, and, and they, they were required by law to make them. They were not oh, okay. When you go back to some of these, they absolutely were. Weren't required by law to they make were these loans. Required by law to make loans to status to keep their CRA rating high enough so they can continue doing You're talking, business. Okay, this goes back to when you were saying that banks were afraid of the R word being labeled racist or something like that. First off, oh, well, was the it was the reason that the law was passed in the first place. Yes, I was going to say there are very legitimate reasons why some of these uh, <laughs> the banks themselves don't care about the R word. Yes, but there's also a history of banking being racist. That's not that's not like a insane thing to say. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that there's not bankers out there that denied African Americans or blacks or Hispanics or whatever loans or something like that? Like you're saying the the banking industry is one of the all time good old white boy industries of all time. It's huge in the South. To think that there's not a valid reason why some of these things were passed is just ridiculous to me. There's a well-intentioned reason. I'm not saying... Look, my argument that I've always said, and this is why I would say I'm always a moderate, is that whenever we have these arguments, I feel like the answer is almost always in the middle. I think that when it comes to re what regulations do, what, when, when people have imposed these strict regulations, it's for a reason. It's for a very good reason. But often they go too far and they overextend themselves and there's negative consequences from that. But you are giving a lot of credit to a lot of people who I think are just immoral at what they did. The banking industry in general. Like I, I do not give a shred of credit to them being like, well, they were trying to do this, but regulations forced them to do this. 
They just, you know, oh, poor them. They made these billions of dollars off the fucking... There was a classic case of price steering gone wrong. Forcing them to make billions. Anytime the government tries to steer prices, they go berserk. And it causes massive market dislocations, which leads to whatever the next crisis is. And invariably, people blame the crisis... Not on the laws that caused it, but on the people that just exist in the market and are trying to make money. Okay, and that's fair. But what I would say is, so a lot of these things that you were just talking about, just going progressing from the Reagan era to the Bush one and then Clinton and Bush two. So first off, this is there's a lot of this stuff where technology goes so fast that you don't always you can't always foresee how culture is going to be this is why uh when i talked about it last week the economy is a a sound wave where it goes up and down up and down i mean it's pretty constant it goes up and down up and down there's higher highs and lower lows the reason because of that is because you can never fully predict the future the economy is going to go good it's going to go bad there's going to be higher highs higher lows uh some of these things are just Mistakes are going to happen, is what I'm going to say, for Republicans and Democrats. Obviously, all these regulations on, on what you're saying or what I'm saying about banks being generally evil uh, or overbearing or whatever the fuck, um, these things happen. But my point being is, uh, I think a lot of the times, how do I want to say this? It's okay, it's not okay, it's understanding that some of these things happen, but I just think it's insane when it comes back to the argument of who you're trying to allocate blame on. Because that's what I'm trying That's what I'm trying to figure out from your whole argument right now, is who are you saying is at fault here? You're saying regulation. That's your number one thing you're saying is regulation on this whole thing. Yes, we find a thread all the way through of well-intentioned people in government passing laws that they think are going to help people and the unintended secondary and even tertiary consequences of their actions create much larger crises than the ones or the much larger problems than what they were trying to solve in the first place. Much larger. Much larger. So you don't think that there's a possibility that if there hadn't been some regulations we could have literally had a astronomical crisis. I mean, I'm talking about... So in general... In, in free market, you are still going to have boom and bust, and they happen more often than in a government-controlled or government-steered economy. But those peaks and valleys are much smaller. Well, you, okay, but you said this a couple times. When you say in free market, what free market are you, re- are you referring to? Well, if you look you're at the panics, about, like before the Great Depression, we referred to them as panics, right? I know, but you're, are you, are you talking about the, the philosophical idea of free market? Like Adam Smith's idea of a free market? Yeah, essentially, yes. Okay, so you're talking about theories. Okay. You're, well, I'm just saying that's a valid thing to point out. Theoretical <laughs> economics is like a big difference than real, like real the reality of how the world works i mean in theory communism works but it doesn't work because people are fucking assholes that's why communism doesn't work the same thing can be can be argued about free market capitalism people are assholes and they fuck over people in a free market yeah theoretically it works great you have a you have a service you have a product you have something and the economy works because people there's a fair price supply and demand all that stuff 
But my argument has always been that I, I, I look at this sociologically, is that I don't tr- I'm optimistic about a lot of things, but I am pessimistic when it comes to people. When it comes to sociological issues, I don't trust people as a mass. Ironically, I trust people individually. Like in my life, I feel like I trust most people. But when I'm talking about huge numbers, and when we're talking about America as 370 or 380 million people, I don't trust mass numbers. So that's my argument. Okay. So when we look at examples in history when there has been a free market, kind of the most, like the, the best 20th century example that we can look at would be Hong Kong. You go through the 60s and 70s and the mass, the explosion of Hong Kong in that time, when essentially... The government, like, there's no natural resources there at all. It was, a, it was a trading hub. Government involvement in the economy consisted of contract enforcement. And that was pretty much it. And this little, not that little, but this island in the middle of the Pacific that doesn't have any natural resources prior to the 60s wasn't making anything became a massive economic engine. And that's due to the, the most recent best example of a free market in action. When we look at the 19th century in America, we look at the, the quote unquote robber barons, and we look at things that we don't like, but America, the, the structure, the infrastructure that was needed to allow the industrial revolution to happen and take off was built by those people. Uh, government or private firms are not immoral, they're not good, they're amoral. They exist outside of morality altogether, and laws are put in place. This is why I'm not an anarchist, by the way. <laughs> laws are in place, <laughs> and the most important type of laws we have are contract enforcement. When you freely enter into an agreement, it's important that you carry through that agreement. If you make a sacrifice because it's going to be beneficial for your future, whether it's making less money or it's going to make someone else money in the short term, you make that decision because it's going to get you ahead. When you have millions of people making those same decisions, you can there there are there are negative portions, there are ugly parts of it. We look at Carnegie, Carnegie, Rockefeller, and how we built the infrastructure that built America, and we say that. Well, it was so ugly. Look at the people, like, they did these terrible jobs. They worked so many hours, and those people, like, those guys screwed over a lot of people. And they certainly did, but they did much more good than harm. The benefit of a free market every time it's tried is that you can take bad people and through the forces of the free market and the pricing mechanism and the profit motive, you force them to do, on balance, good things. Greed goes from being a sin to a virtue. Now, when you are bailing out losers, when you're trying to steer prices, when you're interfering with that engine, which we have done all through the 20th century, we can look at any number of economies. Anytime they do that, prices go berserk. And that's when greed becomes a sin. When you are protected from the negative consequences of your actions, as I have laid out in detail, in some level of detail, when you do that, greed becomes the greatest sin 
because it's beneficial for you to screw people over, and when they fall apart, you fail. Okay. When you're voluntarily in a free and open society, going entering into contracts with people, they only work if it's a win-win. Okay, so my two are, my two counters to what you just said are, A, I'm glad you acknowledged that when you said sometimes bad, you said that they even now, I mean, when you're talking well, about- on balance, they're good. They're okay. much more good than bad. They I'm just, say, bad I'm just saying you're, you're, you're glossing over a lot of dark points of history. And I, I understand what you're saying about how, you know, the infrastructure of America and, and was built and all that stuff. And okay, yes. Well, all those people that took those jobs that got screwed over, and I make a quote symbol with my fingers, every one of those people chose to do that job okay. because it's better than whatever their alternative was at that time. Well, first off, when that, we go, that's just, that's, okay. When we look through a lens of what we Dude. think, what we know our lives to be and things, what they were doing is just terrible. For those people, it was better than something else. Okay, I think that's incredibly not true. A, uh, I think I think what you're saying, you're just glossing over throwing millions of Chinese at the railroad systems that died doing this thing. The misery of the the poverty and difference between Rockefellers and some of the stuff that they did. Look, I understand all the good they did and all that stuff, but that is very easy to gloss over the millions of people who died doing that stuff, and you can say. Oh, well, it's better than what they would have had. Again, it's still glossing over a shitload of stuff when you're just saying, like, well, in the end, the end's justified to me. Second off, okay, you talked about Hong Kong. I find that kind of crazy that we're talking about free market. You know, you're talking about... First off, we're talking about... Uh, pre-1999. Okay, pre-1999. Pre Especially I, in the I understand all that. First off, I think there's a lot of merit of... Uh, when you're talking about a case study, you're talking about two decades or something like that. You know, a lot of stuff can happen in a, in two decades, and things look great. But then, when you see them out, things turn south. I mean, shit, the the, the internet bubble, the '90s bubble, everything was great. You know, you were talking about how he was. You were talking about how George Bush was sitting on this bubble. Well, you know, things tend to bust. So when you're talking about how the free market was great for those two decades, who knows how that would have played out? All I'm saying is, it's. Different in every scenario. It's different with populations. It's different with geographic uh, advantages and disadvantages you have and stuff like that. I think it's kind of crazy that we're talking about how Hong Kong is the shining example of the free market. Um, <laughs> I just think that that's uh, an interesting, you know, place that we've got to. I get. I like the idea of free market. All I'm saying is I'm a realist when it comes to. I don't believe that a fully free market is a good thing because I think it leads to suffering because I think people in a, in a fully free market, there will be opportunists who will exploit suffering to get rich. And I think that's been shown throughout history over and over again. And generally speaking, I want to reduce, this sounds like the hippiest thing I've ever said, I've ever said, but like, I want to reduce the suffering as much as possible in this world. I love money. Money's awesome. Capitalism is sweet. But I don't think that it's a moral thing to just throw human suffering to make profit and all that stuff. And what, in the last 200 years, has done the most to improve the standard of living of people all over the globe and thereby decrease suffering? Oh, well, capitalism. 
But you're also you're also okay. Yeah, I, I'll give you that. But I mean, you're also again throwing away the millions of people that have suffered at the hands of it. And again, I'm tell I agree with you when you say for the greater good, for human societal advancement, we would never even be close to where we are technologically, medicinally. Uh, the fact, like the fact that the governments of the world are generally speaking. I mean that we have de democracies in much of the world. I think it's it's very valid. The capitalism is a huge part of that, and I completely agree with all of that. But I'm just saying, now that we've gotten to that point, my personal belief is we've gotten to a point in history where we can be picky and we can be a little bit more uh, selective about what we choose to accept as a reality. I think that. There are many times throughout history where, you know, we didn't know better or we had to do this to do to get to that point or something. I don't know. Uh, I'm not saying it's justified, but it happened and we got to these places. I think that we are in a, a position in history for the first time ever where we can slow it down a little bit and actually focus on making things better for the masses instead of just trying to just push ahead as much as much as much as possible that's kind of my argument and i know a lot of people might disagree with that the idea of free market you get what you earn and all that stuff that's fine but like i just think that's a dangerous way to look at life why why is that dangerous because i think generally you should be trying like you should be trying to do what you would hope other people would do for you. And I think that there's a lot of ways in this world to make money by fucking over other people. And I think it's dangerous if, if that's rewarded. Why is that? What do you mean, why is that? Why is it so much easier now? Okay, why is it easier now to make a lot of money by screwing other people than building a legitimate business? I didn't say it was easier. I'm just saying, historically speaking, there's a lot of ways to make money by screwing people over, whether it's crime or business. That's just like the way of the world. If you're just incredibly self-absorbed and you don't give a fuck about what happens to other people, whether it's being cutthroat in business or just being a fucking criminal, it's the same idea. It's just like, if you are solely caring about yourself, you are willing to do certain things that others aren't and you can get further ahead than other people because of your lack of compassion for other people. I'm not saying that, and by the way, this makes me sound like I think capitalists or businessmen or something are cold-hearted bastards. I love businessmen. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to be in that world of I'm, I'm a homeowner. I want to I be wealthy and all that stuff. I'm fully in favor of a generally free market and capitalism and all that stuff. I just, the whole conversation that we got into at the beginning of this was regulation. Mm -hmm. And I just believe that there is a certain amount of that that is necessary <laughs> to contain uh, essentially reeling in the shittiness of people. That's my argument about regulation is it it's a containment of human nature because I think there is enough our populations are so big nowadays. We have, what, 8 billion people on the planet now? Enough of them are shitty that we need some sort of containment. That's my argument. And my belief on this is that the way you prevent that and what, what level of government can exist 
has to exist to prevent the initiation of force. And there's a little bit of a dichotomy there because taxation is by definition the initiation of force because if you want to exist, you got to make money. If you make money, you got to pay taxes. If you don't pay taxes, you're, you know, someone's going to come with a gun and harm you. So, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of a dichotomy and a, a contradiction there. But by only having people involved in contracts and business deals that they enter into voluntarily are not forced into, even though once they enter into that deal, <coughs> Whoa. excuse me, oh my god, we got the first Milwaukee Magic uh, burp. <laughs> um, you are then you're then forced to carry through it. You entered into it voluntarily. So you look at now, I mean, in capitalism, as you're experiencing those growing pains, there are things that are going to be not pretty. There's things that are going to be ugly. And there's people that are going to be really shitty and are going to do things that commit crimes for which that they <coughs> can and should be punished for. There are things that, like, if you watch the series The Men Who Built America, it's kind of interesting. I watched it. Um, I mean, there were things those guys did that were pretty unconscionable. Again, it was, it was, and I'll give you this, it was a different time. And they were not, like, good guys. No. You wouldn't want them in your weekly poker game. <laughs> you wouldn't want them on your Milwaukee podcast. You wouldn't want them having your back in a fight because you can't Self-serving. trust them. Yeah. You can't trust them. The biggest bet and the biggest flaw with capitalism is that guys that do that can, can create and force an unequal share for themselves of the bounty that's created. But overall, on balance, the world was made dramatically better by essentially bad people doing things to get ahead. I will give you this that I've always said, um, you know, people are always shocked when famous people, whether it's athletes or politicians or whatever, turn out to be bad people. Um, I think that there is a link between greatness, meaning excelling beyond most people in a field. And essentially psychopathy. (laughs) Yeah. Because I think to get to that level, you have to be that type of person. So... I get what you're saying. I, I understand that anything that's ever really been extraordinary done by humans usually has resulted in some sort of suffering at some in some extent. Absolutely. It's not all roses and freaking it's not all beautiful. But and, and I get that, but I'm but saying, I, I think I think saying that we need regulation and government to protect us from the evil things because we think that the results of that are gonna be better on balance than what have happened otherwise is naive and we have hundreds of years of history to prove that and just in yeah but again you're going against something that hasn't happened I mean that hasn't happened look at well you're talking about you're talking about we have we have so much data to say that regulations are bad but we haven't had like a long standing country that's had a fully free market so it's not like we have a, and why a compare-contrast type thing. People get weak need, and they want to start protecting themselves. At some point, people say, you know, the stuff that's worked really well, 
Let's do less of the stuff that works really well and do more of the stuff that doesn't work really well. So if you think America for the last, you know, 250, 300 years, whatever, uh, would have been a just total free market, are you saying we'd just be living in some sort of utopia right now? You don't, you don't think, like, do you think that, like, See, the free market who was uh, in, in the South, they were making exorbitant exorbitant amounts of money off slaves and stuff uh they would have just been like you know what this slavery thing's wrong probably shouldn't do that anymore like do you think that the, a free market since the dawn of america would have been a good thing like we'd be living in this utopia like we would have figured shit out and slavery is in its very nature anti-free market uh explain because the, the, the whole point of voluntarily entering into contracts is that you voluntarily, so like it's the word voluntary, right? Not a slave. If you're a slave, okay. you can't enter but into that is a, voluntarily that is a contract. That is incredibly a semantic and idealistic way to look at free market. You're saying everyone has the equal playing field of deciding whether... There's no such thing as an equal playing field. I'm just... You have equal treatment and equal standing under the law. Okay. That's what's important. Now, what's changed is our view of the value of life. And that's important. Those are very positive changes. Okay. But the application of how to get ahead, given that view or that value of life, has been distorted. By and the way, that's the problem. I'm sorry, I just have to tell, I have to fully disagree with you that you're saying slavery is not free market. Because in a free market, whatever the supply and demand is, that's what a free market is. If, and in a free market, if slaves are, if, if, supply, if there's a demand for slaves, then they will be supplied. That's what free market is. In, in a society where you don't view people as people. Well, I, we weren't talking about that. We were just talking about free market. Free market is supply and demand at its core. If there's a demand for slaves, you can have a free market society and have slaves. That's the point of being more of a black market than a free market. And given the societal belief that certain people don't matter, that well, they I mean, they're not do. they're not people. They don't have the right to but I mean, either America enter into or that. refuse to enter into a contract voluntarily, then you can do that. But that's a societal view. But that that's not that is not okay, don't take the people who are extremely distorted in their view of humanity and say and assume that capitalists are those people because capitalism is a principle and it's going to be built on top of how like your values and how you view people again i'm not if you view people as slaves then capitalism for you is going to look a certain way again i'm not saying that but all i'm saying is america did do that for a long time so to say that it wasn't a market it wasn't a capital it wasn't a black market then that was part of the economy that was what we fought a war over because half the country wanted that to continue to be part of the, the, the economy. They view that as a... That was, the, that was the southern way of life. That was how they viewed their economy. It was a plantation, slave-owning half of the country. So What, 3% of them owned slaves? Well, yeah, because I mean, three, three percent like of they all own slaves. I didn't say they all own slaves, but it was, it was certainly... It was part of their culture, and that was a problem. Look... I, I don't know. What's interesting is that when we go before the 19th century, almost every society owned slaves. And other than the United States, the only other country that had to fight a civil war to end it 
other than the United States, was Haiti. Okay. Britain passed a law banning slavery, and what they did is they paid the slave owners for their slaves, and then gave them their freedom. Well, that's because Britain was doing a great job of colonialism and making slaves in other countries that wasn't Britain. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what they did. That was kind of their whole bag for quite a long time. Which, by the way, I, this, is, a, this is off topic. But that's a separate debate. This is a, and I just need to say this real quick, and we don't need to go down this road, but Britain should be much more hated like, than they are. I feel like the U.S. gets so much hate for so much stuff that I feel like Britain started, and we just, they passed the baton of hate to the U.S. But we can go down that road another podcast. A lot of the things, like, especially if you look like India. Yeah. The things that people really hated that colonialism was doing there. The people that lived there were doing better before they threw them off. Say that, wait, what do you mean? The... The rate of improvement of the standard of living in India was, well, it was positive. It was improving. And... You're saying when, when they colonized it? From the time they colonized it until they threw out British leadership. That was, what, in the 50s? Uh, we're, we're going down a dangerous road. I don't anyway. Want to, I don't want to go down and then it went from improving to decline. I don't agree with any of that, but okay. That's a, well, it's a separate debate. Um... Okay, so, and we can move on to another topic. Let's just, my, my point that I wanted to make on all of this, and I, I think you've made some very, very good points, and I agree with a lot of the shit you said. What I, and I, like I've said from the beginning, I often think when people argue politics, my biggest gripe is that people think it's black or white, it's this way or that way, and I think it's often in the middle. I... Don't I'm not a regula regulation nut. Like I'm not like I'm not one of these ultra liberals who think you need to fucking regulate every single decision made or anything like that. My point being is that a fully free market scares me. I think there needs to be certain checks and balances in place. I think that's a deciding principle. Of, checks and balances is kind of what this country was founded on between, you know, having the, the three branches and stuff like that. I just think that regulation is safer because I don't trust masses of people. It's absolutely safer. Um, it's very scary to be dependent on the outcome of your own choices, your own work, and to a certain extent, to a large extent, luck. It is definitely safer and easier to have a safety net that you can rely on. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, first Treasury, nation's first Treasury Secretary, when talking about kind of that sort, same sort of an idea, if you are willing to... A nation which would prefer security to liberty, to freedom, to taking that chance is prepared for a master and deserves one. So my problem with that, with that concept is you may feel safer, but what you're getting at the end is going to be so much less than what probably would have happened otherwise. I just hear a lot of probably's. <laughs> well, <laughs> there are... No, I, there's I, always a chance. I get what you're saying, but again, I, I just, when it comes to free market... And maybe you're prepared for a master, and I'm not. 
See, this is this is my big argument against it. I think a free market is so much more likely to have a master. Like I think the idea of having I think a free market, a fully free market, I should say again, this makes me sound anti-free market. I'm not. I think the more free market you have, the bigger disparity of rich and poor. I think at some point it becomes just an oligarchy and eventually someone is likely to take take over. When you have regulations... You need government regulation to maintain an oligarchy. Otherwise... We're talking about past... Power stuff. collapses. Look, we are in a unique time. There's not a playbook on well, a lot of this stuff. Unique. What? Every time is unique. Every time is unique. I, I get what you're saying. I just... I just don't think that there's a, a playbook to talk about uh, the economies that we have now. It's a global economy. This has never happened before. I don't th I'm not as worried about a dictatorship as I was before. Um, there's certain people that scare me. Like even like a like a, I've, we talked about in the last uh, podcast how much a, a Trump presidency scares the shit out of me. I don't think that he would become like a fucking Mussolini or something like that. Because quite honestly, I'm, I'm like, it, it, it's not good business to be a dictator um, in, in America right now, because you know what? We make so much more money as a free market. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it makes sense at this point to become a authority, authoritarian, you know, if you're, if you're in charge of some uh, Middle Eastern country or something like that, where you can, as a, as a leader or something like that, be a dictator and you can live this crazy lifestyle or something like that. You know, that's one thing, but like in America, you don't make your money by controlling everyone. You make your money in the free market. It's way better to be the man in the shadows with your hand on the man. Yes. Um, which that leads to a different thing when it comes to money and government and corporations and rich people manipulating and buying government officials, they only do that if the government officials they're trying to buy have a lot of power. If they don't have a lot of power, there's no reason to buy them. I think that's a good, 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 uh... All right, so we're going to segue here. Um, so we're going to try to Hold keep on. it 20 before minutes. We, and we've before we say an hour, just, just final, final thoughts, because I... I actually agreed with a lot of what you said. Um, I did. Is there anything I said that you were like, okay, that was valid? Or are you just completely anti-regulation? No, like I said, I mean, in order for... I'm not an anarchist. Like, I'm very much a, like a limited government Ayn Rand objectivist. Okay. Definitely not an anarchist. You have to have some level of regulation because there are market dislocations and basically cheats that can be that can develop that can where you can financially create the the initiation of force and the reason government is there is to prevent that from happening but where government is not there is to prevent people from living out the consequences of their decisions so regulation that is very limited in control, and the problem with this is that it's the natural inclination of government to grow and liberty to yield. If you have a perfect government, it will in time, and not that long of a time, grow too big 
and start trying to protect people and thereby end up harming them in the long run. It's just, it always, it's happened. The reason why you can say there's not that many, there's no examples of a government that has been free market and stayed that way, that's why. If there's no government, it can't survive. And if there is government and it's functioning properly, it's going to eventually grow. It's happened every time. Like, there is no example where that hasn't happened. So we just passed an hour. I think we're going to stop here, and we'll pick up next week with uh, Ben's topic and then do some general discussion. Thanks for listening this week. Take it easy.